Deja Vu A novel by Ian Hocking Read by the author This novel is copyright Ian Hocking 2005 and was first published by the UKA Press. Please see www.ianhocking.com for further details. Chapter 23 Cologne, three weeks earlier The tusk-like arches of the train station emerged on her left. On her right was a department store. She stepped between them, a wounded figure, her eyes hidden under sunglasses, fixed on the sign for Oppenheim Street. She found a bench. It was late summer and the sun was low. Uta removed a camera from her shoulder bag. She pretended to photograph the street, but she shot an old office block. On its ground floor was a perfumery. Above that, the windows were smoked. Uta took another picture and moved away. She found an alley that led around the back of the building. More photographs. There was a fire escape. Beyond was Father Rhine, steady as the sea. She returned to the main street. On the same bench, she ate ice cream by twilight. She paused on the way home to buy a padlock and a tube of superglue. The shop assistant asked her out for dinner. Uta could never have dinner with this man. She hurried from the shop and vomited into a bin. The day grew old. She avoided eyes and hugged herself against the chill air while others relaxed in cafes and commented on Germany's Indian summer. Uta heard them and seethed. It was not summer, it was autumn. If not that, then winter. She was a student. She was writing a thesis on the use of traditional myths and legends in Shakespeare's tragedies. Six nights ago, she had returned from the Cabana Club. Her friend, Brigitta, had accompanied her, and together they had scanned the crowd. They had not found him. Brigitta had said, Why would he come back? He might expect it. He would not, said Uta. What are you going to do if you see him? First, I need to see him. Brigitta had accompanied her the next night too, and the one after that. Then she had stopped. Uta did not blame her. The music was too loud for conversation, and, as Brigitta persisted with her questions, Uta persisted with her silence. On the third night, alone, Uta saw him, a short, moustached man. He stood in the same corner wearing the same clothes. He chatted to two women just as he had chatted to her. He lit their cigarettes with a Zippo lighter flicked across his thigh. But her fate and theirs took different paths. They smiled indulgently at his broken German and walked away, giggling. Uta watched them leave. She wondered whether she should confront the man. She decided not to. He left two hours later. He was on foot and he walked for almost a kilometre. He meandered and doubled back on himself. Uta matched him. She had lived in the city her whole life and he had not. She stopped on corners and into shadows. She reversed her coat. There were few places for him to lose her. 
They took the underground at Otterplatz and emerged at Reichensbergerplatz. They came to the office block. She recognised the small door where, two weeks before, she had been bundled through by two large men. This was the place. She found a phone booth and called Detective Holtz's office. There was no answer. The night was cold. She walked back to her apartment via the river. The route was dangerous, and she did not care. Fear was nothing next to her anger. She had a stun gun in her bag and a five-inch flick knife under the sleeve of her right arm. She dared every shadow to attack her. Back at her apartment, she considered calling Brigitte. But Brigitte should not be involved, so Uta did not call the woman who had visited her in hospital on the first night when she was still curled, catatonic, bleeding from her vagina and holding scrapes of her attacker's flesh under her fingernails. She did not call Detective Holtz. She took paper and pencil, licked the nib, and planned. On the afternoon before the attack, she had been reading a book. She took it to the sofa. She sat there, jacket on, door wide, and opened the book at its marker. The page showed three old women sitting around a spinning wheel. The caption read, Clotho, she spins the thread of life. Lachesis, she determines its length. Atropos, she cuts it. She knew she was stronger than Brigitte. Her friend would have been damaged for life, but not Uta. She had no fragile belief in right or wrong, or natural order, or of her own invulnerability. She had no creator to blame. She had nothing. She fell. Her house computer asked her if she needed assistance. I need... she began, but she did not know how to finish. The next morning, she examined her photographs over breakfast in a nearby bakery. She returned to her apartment and thought, read, and smoked. She even tried to write some of her thesis. The words wouldn't come. That night, she slept fitfully. At 3am, she had a glass of water, put on her coat, and left the apartment. She returned at 7am and left again at 8am. Part of her knew she should call Detective Holtz, tell him that she had found the office block, and let him arrest the suspects. A nurse had collected sperm. It could be matched with all of the five men. The train arrived and she got on. Her thoughts were lost in the crowd, in the pictures sweeping by, by her fingertips on the stun gun. There was a chubby boy on the train. He was about ten years old. He was on his way to school. He saw Saskia and smiled. She looked away. Uta emptied the glue into the lock. She put the tube in her pocket and left the alley. On the street, she turned right and entered the perfumery. It was precisely 9am. The shop had no customers. Uta walked to the back of the shop and stood near a staff-only door. She pretended to inspect a moisturising soap. When an attendant walked by, Uta clutched the woman's arm. Excuse me, please, but could I have a glass of water? The woman's bright smile faded. Of course. She disappeared through the staff door and returned with an espresso cup of water. I'll have the cup back when you're finished. Uta took two deep breaths, 
drank the water and dropped the cup. She swayed. I am sorry. Are you feeling all right? Perhaps some more water. She fell into the woman's arms, leaving her no choice but to steer her into the back room. Uta's downcast eyes saw linoleum and cleaning buckets. She smelled fresh coffee. The woman dropped her on a chair in a small kitchen. Uta heard the running of a tap, and it was then that she looked up and withdrew her stun gun. The woman turned. She held a mug of fresh water in each hand. When she saw the gun and Uta's cold eyes, she let the mugs drop. They bounced on the tiles. You own the shop? Uta asked. Yes, the woman said. She was tearful, but her anger kept her alert. What do you want? The takings? We've only been open a few minutes. Uta put a finger to her lips. What I have to do today has nothing to do with you or your shop. I need to get into those offices. She pointed at the ceiling. How? The woman relaxed. Uta noticed the blonde highlights in her brown hair, her tan, and the red bandana that was tucked fashionably into the collar of her blouse. Her badge read Zabina Schlesinger. The fire escape, she said. No, Uta replied. She pictured her journey that morning, before sunrise, when she had stolen up those iron steps in bare feet, attached the padlock, and felt it click home. There is another way. Out of here, turn left, there's an interior fire door that opens onto a corridor. Go up the stairs. You realise I must call the police? Of course, Uta said. She did not lower the stun gun. Please do not follow me. This is for your own safety. Evacuate the shop. What's going to happen to my shop? Evacuate the shop. She walked backwards from the room. In the tiny corridor, there was nobody. She checked on Zabina. Still there. Uta turned and ran through the fire door, closing it behind her. The corridor was empty. At one end was the door with the lock that she had superglued before entering the shop. She checked its handle. Immovable. Her one problem was the connecting door. It had a push-down bar on both sides. She had to act quickly. She removed her shoes and walked up the stairs. A thorough and meticulous murder, Jobanique would tell her, three weeks later. There was an interior door on the first landing. The handle turned. It was a cheap door with a cardboard filling and could not be barricaded. For a second time, she stepped inside. The empty office space was huge. The air was stuffy with sunlight. There were sheets of paper, old mugs, filing cabinets, chairs and sheets of plastic. In the centre were the mannequins. They hadn't moved. Immediately to her left was a walled office. It had an open doorway but no windows. Nearby was the fire escape that she had padlocked earlier that morning. She came closer. She felt dust on her bare feet. She heard snores. Inside, it was dull and hot. She counted six sleeping men. They were lying, two half-dressed, four naked, overlapping by foot and hand. Uta had once been afraid of these men. 
Now she was disgusted. There was a camping toilet in one corner. In another, a television and a games console. There was a duvet in the centre. The stench of sweat and the semen was nauseating. Uta took the can of lighter fluid from her bag. She squirted it onto the duvet. It was a good feeling. She was pissing on these men. Next, she took a match and flicked it into the centre. The duvet erupted. Thick smoke poured outward in a carpet, hugging the ground, making for the door. She did not hurry to withdraw her stun gun. Humans cannot smell while they are asleep. She had checked. She saw the moustached man who had led her from the club. He was middle-aged and balding, but Uta had always preferred older men. He had drugged her martini. Later, he had injected her with scopalamine and morphine as she crouched to retie her shoe. Life had become hazy and slow. Her resistance had fallen away. For passers-by, she was a drunk. The man waved them on with a laugh. She fired the gun. Two darts flew out and embedded in his thigh. They connected to the stun gun with strong, insulated cables. The darts had barbs. They could not be extracted without ripping muscle. There was a second trigger to activate the charge. Quickly, she fired darts into all of the men. She pulled the trigger. The bodies twitched and rolled. She remembered that, at the conclusion of the ordeal, the moustached man had injected her again. He had put a fatherly arm across her shoulders and led her to the Rhine. One last injection, the rest of the syringe, a gentle push, and she fell. Calloused arms had found her in that cold, empty hell and heaved her onto a barge, shouted words in a language she did not understand, wiped hair and muck from her mouth, shone light in her eyes, injected her. She pulled the trigger again. This time the moans were louder, angrier. Eyes sought her. They were monstrous but pathetic. She realised that they would never be as strong as her, she had returned. She pulled the trigger a third time. Bodies convulsed. The smoke grew soupy. One of the men tugged at a barb on his chest. Uta watched the flesh draw to a peak. It would not rip. Finally, the man collapsed in the smoke. The duvets burned blue-green. She watched the flame. Someone grabbed her ankle and Uta screamed. She pulled the trigger again and the hand tensed. It fell and lay flaccid on her foot. With each pull of the trigger, she imagined herself raping them, firing into them, inching them towards the edge of an abyss with each dirty push. This, she shouted, is what it feels like when you're fucked. She closed the door. Behind the burning duvets, a naked woman rose. She shimmered through Uta's tears. Uta cursed her own stupidity. She reached forward to help the victim from the room. She would have a straightforward escape through the door to the staircase and from there through the perfume shop to freedom. The woman said one word. Vibestuck. Bitch. She grabbed Uta's throat and pushed hard. Uta dropped the stun gun and they crashed through the door. In sudden daylight, the woman's eyes seemed to be more animal than human. 
a cat's eyes. The eyes were familiar. She had been present at Uta's rape. She had looked on. Uta tripped, but the woman followed her down. They slid over the floor. Uta felt the world darken. Above them, the ceiling was on fire. That's my gift, Uta thought. Plastic embers began to fall. Still the world darkened. They knocked into the mannequins. The dolls were heavy, and one struck the woman's forehead. Her grip relaxed momentarily. Uta took a breath before it was re-established. She had come here to kill her attackers. She would not be satisfied with all but one of them. Inside her shoulder bag, she found the canister of lighter fluid. She jammed the can into her attacker's mouth and twisted savagely. The thin metal tore and Uta pulled it free. She did not wait. She soared at the woman's throat. The skin opened. The woman's grip relaxed and her cat eyes glazed. She bucked and slithered away. Uta grabbed her ankle. The woman yelled. She jammed the cold ball of her foot into Uta's throat. The pain stopped time. When finally she moved, she could see only the expressionless mannequins and their hard, plastic fingers. They seemed to mob her. They were dead, and they wanted her dead too. From the gaps between one mannequin and the next, there issued only smoke, not air. She screamed. The coffin lid would not budge. It was in the oven of a crematorium. The darkness was no longer absolute. Cracks appeared. She saw her simple funeral clothes in the moving light. She would escape her coffin now, oh yes, into a fire that might let her linger, let her relish the last few moments of life with a height of sensation she had never known. The crackling flames, smoke, distant organ music, the murmur of David Proctor thanking the priest for a lovely service. Saskia would have wanted it that way. Saskia, Uta thought. The hawk that returned.